In this episode, I discover a talent for impersonation, and both of us are hit in the heart by Arsenio's interviews with Sammy Davis Jr. and Muhammad Ali. A listener advisory, there's nothing graphic in this episode, but we do discuss Mike Tyson's divorce and criminal conviction. Stay tuned. From the East Coast of these United States, as far from Melrose Avenue as two people can be without falling into the Atlantic Ocean, this is Growing Up in the Dog Pound, props to Arsenio Hall, with Jamie and Natalie. Just like that, we travel back in time to Boston College, 1988 to 1992. On this episode, we're going to see the debut of Mariah Carey. And Mariah Carey was second in the line, I think, of divas. We First, we had Whitney Houston debut, not, not on Arsenio. She was pre-Arsenio. And then Mariah's on Arsenio. And in the 80s, like prior to this time, I don't really think we had a lot of solo female singers that took on this diva role. Those two were early uh, kind of trailblazers in that area. Yes, they definitely were. But in our little dorm room, we did have a recording of one diva that we both enjoyed. Um, that woman did not have a long career, but we enjoyed her at the time. Her name was Karen White. I remember. And there was a song we both really thought was fun, but um, you had a little story kind of to go around with it. And I'm wondering if you could tell that story about the song and a person that we knew that seemed to uh, fit the lyrics. Well, what I recall was that uh, we'll say that her her name is Annie. Annie uh, was in a relationship with a, with a guy and it was kind of a strange relationship at the time because, I mean, here we are, we're kids. And sure, you know, we probably have boyfriends, but we're not really doing anything that would be looked at as, you know, wifey, you know, right. for lack of a better way of saying it. And we were so, really not even mature enough to. No. Yeah. We, we, I was mostly just focused on having a boyfriend so that I could, you know, we had enough trouble like yeah. taking care of our own selves. We were not right. about taking care of a man, really. Right. It was just about like, if I said I wanted a boyfriend, I'm sure, you know, I'm, I know that I definitely wanted a boyfriend throughout my college, you know, time and had, you know, little boyfriends here and there. But 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 it was more so like because I was in love with the idea of having a boyfriend, not that I was thinking long term, like, oh, right, like, right. Let, let me cook for him and like, let me, oh, perhaps wash his clothes or something like that. So this is where where Annie comes in. Annie uh, was going out with a pretty well-known basketball player on campus and. She was in a weird situation where, I mean, this is a smart girl, but 
you know, she anytime her boyfriend needed anything, she would just come a running. And, you know, if he needed his clothes washed, you know, done, she would like be in the laundry room doing his, you know, doing his laundry. And it's like, and so we had like real problems with that. Now, at the time I was not compassionate, you know, it was like, what is she stupid? Like who does that? It wasn't only you. A lot of, a number of people were looking at this relationship and thinking like, is she in the 1950s? Right. Like what's her deal? Like now as a older woman, looking back on, I would not have taken that stance with her. I would have been like, Hey, you know, I would have been kind of concerned that she was taking on this type of responsibility with somebody who may or, you know, may not be her husband down the line and it's may like, not you know, be deserving of this. Correct. And maybe he's not treating her that well. And, you know, at the time, a lot of these, you know, basketball players had like more than one girlfriend. So she probably thought she was the only one, but maybe he's got like two or three other girlfriends. And so I was, you know, so it's, it, it was, it would be concerning for me now. And I would be like, Oh, poor, poor, poor Annie. But at the time I was kind of ruthless. I was, I was kind of like, oh, you know, <laughs> you know, like she's really dumb. Like, who does that? Like, I would never do all of that. And I would never, you know, just, you know, do whatever he asked me to do. Because she did other stuff, too. I just can't remember now. Like, she would do his laundry and perhaps even iron his clothes. And, you know, like she was really, you know, doing a lot of wifey duties. And so the song by Karen White, Superwoman, as we know, have, you know, there are a lot of references to like, I, you know, I put breakfast on your table and. I forget what other things she says in the song, but like, and so we would, we would joke that she was the superwoman and we would, with meanness in our heart, sing that song like, oh, you know, I don't know. I just remember singing it and that other people would also agree with me and sing along with it. Yeah, I don't think anybody teased her to her face, but. No, um, absolutely not. No. There was an idea that she was the superwoman in the song, which it was a weird song. It was very. Well done. I think Karen White was talented, but the song was old fashioned for the time. You know, she's talking about your eggs are over easy, your toast done lightly. And she's she's doing everything like working like a dog and making his dinner and he's not reciprocating. That was the gist of the song. Yeah. And it's got to be like there's still some residual like women out there that weren't like, I don't know, totally career focused because I don't that song would not have any life now. No. So, no, although so, the woman in the song does have a job. She's that's why she's superwoman. Right, right. True, true, true. So I shouldn't say that. So this is a de- definitely a working woman. But uh but just Annie was <laughs> was definitely, you know, somebody who was like smart and, you know, attractive and, you know, so we were like so we would look at it from the standpoint like what is she doing? Like she can have any guy she wants. She's a really pretty girl. And, you know, yeah, why, she was. you know, why is she like, you know, humiliate, like to us, it was like a humiliation that like she would be, you know, doing his laundry, like as if she was his maid. Cause that, I think that's the way we were looking at it. Like she's his servant or maid or something. And that was not going to fly. You know? No, no. And, and, you know, to be fair, there was probably a little jealousy there among, not, not you, Natalie, I never thought of you as a jealous person, but some of the people who were yeah. saying those things about her were probably thinking like, I wish I was dating so-and-so basketball player. Yeah, I think there was an element of jealousy, but also I'll be, I'll be honest. I think that part of it was like, oh, you know, she's got a boyfriend. So I wanted to have a boyfriend. Right. I basically always wanted to have a boyfriend, right? So she's got a boyfriend and he's a basketball player. So that's a huge deal. 
right? Yep. Because when you say his name, everybody knows who he is, and it's kind of a cool thing to, to it have. Yeah. So, so she here she is, pretty girl, and she's got a basketball player boyfriend. These are all enviable things, mm-hmm. right? But then, so it was felt kind of good to be like. Exactly. All is is not perfect here. He might be a basketball player, but he's kind of a jerk and he's making her do, you know, he's making her do his laundry. So that was kind of like she doesn't have it all. You know, there was a little element of that, even though I'm not really a jealous person. I had a little there was a little bit of that there, you know, at the time. Well, anytime you see something that looks perfect, it's tempting to think about. Is it really correct? I have less. I, I, I'd like to say I have less of that now, but maybe we all it's human nature. Maybe we all might have a little, little envy in our hearts sometimes for certain things, you know, but but I remember just, what do they call that? Shout and shout and Freud when you want to take down when you get pleasure in somebody else's humiliation. Yeah, you think like it's not all so perfect. There she is. It seems like it would be, but no, it's not. You know, so it makes it it's a little more validating, like, oh, I'd, I'd rather be who I am then, you know, right. I, I'll, I'll keep looking for that perfect boyfriend, you know? <laughs> right. Now I have a weird story about Annie that I don't know if you remember. It does not have to do with Karen White, but um, that same year, which I think was freshman year, if I remember correctly, I was sleeping one night. It was a weekend night, like a Saturday night. And it must have <laughs> been like four o'clock in the morning. Does this sound familiar? I, I think, I, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. So, because, you know, we didn't go out anywhere until at least 10 o'clock at night on a Saturday. I'm guessing this was by the time I would have fallen asleep. This had to be like four or five in the morning on a well now case okay, would have been a Sunday morning going in Sunday. So I wake up and I have to go to the bathroom, which is like an ordeal in this little dorm because you have to either prop your door open or take a key or else you're going to be locked out. Your door locks behind you to get to the bathroom, which is down the hall. So I do my thing. I put on my flip flops and I prop the door and I make it to the bathroom, come back to the room. I come back in the room and who do I see standing there at this ridiculous (laughs) hour, but Annie in my room. (laughs) And of course, you know me, right? I don't really wake up easily. So I'm thinking like, am I in Annie's room? Did I go back in the wrong room? <laughs> what is going on? Like I was just standing there like dumbstruck. <laughs> and I I did eventually see you. I thought, okay, she's mistaken, not me. Like she's in my room. <laughs> I'm not I vaguely remember this. Vaguely. <laughs> well, you have a heroic role in this story, so I do. I can't wait her. to hear the end of it. <laughs> and she says, did you just knock on my door? And I said, no, I definitely did not do that. Like, <laughs> I can barely get to the bathroom and back. I'm not about waking people up at four in the morning. The thing is with you, from what I recall, and, and I'll let you continue because I'll break your the flow of your story. Go ahead. But I, no, no, go ahead. I'm what sure I was gonna say it, What I was going to say is that at that time, I remember you being very sleepy. Like if you woke oh, yeah. up and you had to do something, you were very sleepy. But the thing about it is... To the outside, like to anybody else, they wouldn't know that. Like you actually like say words that are coherent and everything. <laughs> I know. It's like, like borderline you, sleepwalking. Yeah. yeah like you look like you look like you're understanding and following everything well. And so I, it's funny because I know that that was true, that you were like that. Like, yeah. oh, my God. Like, but but you were, you would also look normal like you would like here I am and I'm fully coherent and right. awake. <laughs> so like wheels are turning in my head and she says, did you, did you knock on my door? I said, no, I, I know I did not do that. I said, why would you think I would knock on your door at four in the morning? Like what, what possessed you to come up with this theory? And she said, well, somebody knocked on my door and I looked through the peephole and it was a white girl 
and you're the only white girl I know. I was like, what? What? <laughs> this That's so really doesn't make any sense. Like I, I like I couldn't even respond. Like that is such a bizarre. Conclusion. Oh, like she means there's no white. Like I have very few white friends right. and on this floor. You would be the only one that You'd I know. You'd be the likely suspect. So <laughs> I was so confused by the whole situation and partially sleepwalking that I was like, I don't know how to respond to this. I mean, I just, I wanted to know I did not do that. And I also feel sad that maybe you don't have that many white friends. <laughs> 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 but I was just dumbstruck. It was so bizarre. And I remember that you... At this point, you woke up a little better than I did. And you said like, hey, Annie, I don't know what's going on with you, but I'm going to walk you back to your room because you're not making a lot of sense. I did that? (laughs) You did. That's why you were the hero, because I couldn't even speak. It was just so bizarre. So did I walk her back to her room? You did, because at that point, you really don't know, is this person drunk or... Right. So I wonder what my thoughts were at the time. Did I just think she was sleepy? I think that both of us were just like, let's get rid of this problem and go back to bed. Like... (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Like, I have like a super hazy recollection of her doing something weird, but I couldn't, I I couldn't really remember what it, you know, but yeah, and her, yeah, I probably thought she was drunk is my guess. I think you did because you acted like she might need help. <laughs> That's funny. So that was just it has nothing to do with Superwoman. It's just kind of bizarre. I mean, she's a good girl. I remember after I graduated, I want to say maybe two years after I graduated and I was working, doing my thing. And I bumped into her one time and she had glasses on and stuff. And she looked good. I don't know. We talked briefly. I don't even know why, how I saw her. It was in Boston. So I've always wondered what she, what she's done with herself. And yeah, outside of that incident, she did seem to have it together. She, yeah. And I hope she didn't, she married somebody who was good and not like mean. Someone that deserved, she probably is a very attentive wife if she did get married. So I hope it's somebody who deserves it. I'm sure she did. Yeah. I'm sure she, I would be surprised if she didn't have kids. She just yeah. seemed like she would definitely have a family. I'm wishing you well, Annie, wherever you are. Yes. Yeah, you provided us with a funny story, too. <laughs> oh, my. All right. So this show occurs early in Arsenio's run. It's, I think, June of 89. And you can see at the beginning that Arsenio's just starting to feel himself. He's calling his band the posse. He's talking about let's get busy, his catchphrases. And you feel kind of good for him. You know, it's only he took off fast. He started in January. And by June, he's definitely got an audience. You could see with every show, really that we've watched here, you can see his evolution as an artist where he feels more confident, a little more bolder. So yeah, it is refreshing to see that. He's kind of the epitome of cool at this point. He is. We're picking up his language. He's dressing in the way that people are imitating, not necessarily imitating him, but he's in high fashion. He's got the cool fade, the cool haircuts and everything. Yeah, absolutely. And his first guest is someone who is still cool at this time in 1989, but at one point was... Absolutely the coolest. And that is Sammy Davis. Sammy Davis. Love him. What a cool cat. He also makes you happy because he looks amazing with his pinky rings and his cufflinks and his double breasted suit. He's like a gentleman. He like totally dresses like so proper and and elegant and everything. Love him. He never, um, you know, the Rat Pack kind of disbanded, but he never gave up that um, style and that. Uh, presence. Yeah. And it's refreshing. You know, like you, you realize like, wow, I am watching somebody from another time. 
you know, dressed as he is. But it was a, it was it was great to see him. I was I, I understand that uh, it was not easy for Arsenio to convince Sammy to be on the show. Yeah, I mean, it didn't take too long. So this is June. He started in January. It's not that long. But I read an interview with Arsenio that said that when he first asked Sammy Davis Jr. to come on the show, Sammy said, I can't because I'm a Carson guy. Mm. And it could be that I think the most likely thing is that Johnny Carson was legendary in terms of his um, ability to hold a grudge. And if he felt that you crossed him, he would ban you from the show. I did not know that. Look at that. He looks so happy-go-lucky. Yep. Did not realize he was I know. Yeah, no. <laughs> no, he was not, but then you, not nice. I read a but biography. But then you wonder, why too. can't somebody be on both shows? Like, what's the deal here? Well, yeah, it turned out that um, Carson liked Arsenio and felt unthreatened because, you know, he saw it as a for the newer generation. Right. Different audience. Um, so maybe, I don't know, maybe Sammy Davis checked it out with him. I don't know what the story was, but that was the first response he gave to Arsenio. And then when he actually showed up in June, he apologized to Arsenio and said, I should have been here sooner. Oh, I know. Like, And, and I, I love that, you know, during the show when we're getting more towards the end of the show, but when he said, you've got me, you've got me for life. I'll come back anytime. The next time I can bring, you know, Liza Minnelli and Frank Sinatra with me, we can perform old jam. I I love that. I love that the interview went so well and that Sammy, you could see that Sammy throughout the course of the interview was feeling like, you know, I'm having a good time. Arsenio is a good guy. This guy's going to be here for a long time. I can see that he's talented and you got me. And, you know, that was his expression. Yep. You got me for life. He's proud of him and he wants to do what he can to help him succeed. So awesome. But he starts on a unusual note. He talks about um, quitting drinking and drugs. And he says that he used cooking to kind of distract him as part of that process. Which is so cool that that was the way, it, that was the healing, that cooking turned out to be a healing, you know, a, a healing strategy, I guess, you know, and I love that he said, you know, anytime he goes to a different performance destination, that's what he does. He makes sure he brings his cooking equipment and that's what he does after the shows. He'll like, you know, go back to his hotel and whatnot and start whipping it up. And I, I love that that, that that helped him, you know, uh, in that way. Yeah, he talks about that uh, he's he's starting to market some products that he's some food products that he made, like um, maybe a barbecue yeah, sauce and mustard, a mustard or mean something. Mustard. <laughs> yeah, I think he referred to it. Yeah, I think he said uh, I called it mean mustard because you'll never see a brother ask for a great coupon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I like that he had all of those things going on. And there were a lot of endearing moments. I really loved when uh, they came back from a commercial break and Sammy said, you know, do you mind if I do a number with your band, with your guys? I love that. It was just so natural. It felt, I mean, maybe it was all, you know, premeditated, but I didn't feel that. I just felt like, you know, here he is. He's a true artist. He just wants to relax, talk and get up and jam. And I love that. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that um, it was not premeditated because the band actually started, we don't see this due to the magic of editing, but they started playing the wrong song. So he says that he wants to play, he wants to sing Time After Time. And the band starts playing the Cindy Lauper Time After Time, which was super popular oh at that God. moment and actually was covered by a lot of people. So would not be ridiculous to think that... Um, that's what he wants. But he, of course, is referring to the 1947 time after time. Oh, my God. Which if you 
If it doesn't pop to your mind, I think it's safe to say it. It's the kind of song that you can easily picture someone singing while holding uh, a glass of alcohol and smoking a cigarette at the same time. It's very yeah, loungy Correct. kind of yeah. song. So we don't see that, but um, they start playing the wrong song and they correct it and he does a great job. So it's probably impromptu. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a, <laughs> I'm glad we were able, I'm glad for the magic of editing. I know. I think of it every, every week when I edit the podcast, I think, well, look at that. We messed up, but you'd never know. <laughs> no, we were perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it was a really cool interview. And even during the interview, they also, uh, Sammy also mentioned that he was getting ready to adopt a child, that he already had three kids and he was getting ready to adopt another one. Now, had he adopted before, Jamie? Are you, do you know anything about that? Yeah, I think he, I'm pretty sure he adopted two kids with um, my Brit, who I think was his second wife. Ah. So he's open to adopting, uh, but it's unusual because at this point he's 63. So you don't think of someone adopting at that right. age. Right. It just shows you what kind of energy he still had, what kind of positive spirit that he still wanted to, you know, to, to I mean, it's not easy to say like, I'm going to raise another child, but he just had so much energy and so much drive. And so it's hard, it's hard to conceive of the fact that, that really this is, this was his last interview with our, with our, uh, before this was maybe a year before he died or a few months before he died. It was about a year before he died. I'm not sure if he came back or not uh, when he was sick. He did do some TV when he was sick, but I don't know if he did Arsenio. Right. It, it, it might have been kind of hard for Arsenio to see him like that. I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, it's just hard to know that, like, he's going to get progressively worse health-wise and that he was going to pass. Right. It's like, oh, it's sad to know that. And, and, and it's just even more endearing when, when you factor in that he said to Arsenio, you know, you've got me for life. You know, it just makes it I know. That more, more emotional to watch and, and know that, that basically he, he doesn't have that much time left on this earth, you know? Yeah, for a number of these interviews and probably because of our own age and, you know, how much we've seen, a lot of these interviews are poignant because you know what's around the corner for the person. Right. And maybe they're at the height of their game on Arsenio. Maybe there's just a happy moment, whatever. Or maybe they're struggling and you know that they're they're not going to be struggling for long. When you know what's ahead, it kind of gives you a... Um, I don't know, an unusual feeling. You don't, you don't, you wouldn't have had that at the time because you didn't know. The right, answer. exactly. And it's funny to see like with certain guests, like they'll say something profound about life, you know, their philosophy, whatever it is. And because like you just said, we're in the present, we know what, what's going to happen next. It's it's always interesting to compare what they said at the time to what had what happens later, whether they still hold to the same yep. philosophy, the same opinions or whatever, or whether they change or it's, it's an interesting thing to be able to, to know that, you know, it's like we we're, we're powerful yeah. in this way because we, we know what the future, you know, what the future holds. And, and it is interesting to factor those things in. And we know the future for him, which is rough. However, he also talks about his past, like in the 40s when he was in the military and the army. And that was also rough. So, I mean, he's in a good place now and he had many good years, but um, he had his rough spots I as mean, well. I mean, you hear about people putting urine in his beer and painting him white when he was in the military. It's like, really? You know, Sammy went through all of that. And it was just, it was, it was hard to hear him talk about that and to say like, look, you know, I'm an entertainer. Basically, that's what he said, not verbatim, but he said, I'm an entertainer. So the way that I got through it uh, was able to combat racial tensions and and all kinds of, you know, negative things like that is by entertaining, you know, by by using what I had, what God gave me to, to get through it. And that that helped him, you know, and 
he it was hard for him because a lot of people he felt like a lot of people criticized him. Some people from his own uh, African-American community called him a Tom because of, of some of the decisions he made. But he felt like, you know what, I needed to keep the peace. I needed a this is the way that I survived in this environment is by entertaining. Mm-hmm. And I would entertain white and, you know, black audiences. Yeah. And he says, like, I'm a little guy. I think he's like under 100 pounds, probably. There's no way he's going to be able to defend himself physically. They broke his nose multiple times. And right. it's crazy. Right. He's been through so much. I mean, l- later on, he loses his left eye and has a as glass mm-hmm. eye. I mean, he just he's he just he's a survivor. And it was refreshing. It was it was good because I you know, this is not Sammy's from another generation. So, I mean, I had some knowledge of his performing ability. I remember seeing him on maybe some old TV shows or something. But I this was the first time I had ever really watched him and just kind of gotten, you know, gotten a feel for who he was. And it was it was great to see it. He has a lot of heart. That's what comes through is that he has a lot of heart. For sure. You and I have different um, a little bit different interests, you know, before we knew each other. And I actually had watched him quite a bit because I'm a big fan of Frank Sinatra. So I watched a lot of Rat Pack recordings. And um, I picked this episode for our podcast. And I was a little on the fence about it because I thought, you know, Arsenio is known for breaking new acts. And this is the opposite of a new act. So is this really something we want to take a look at? Then when I read that Arsenio really campaigned to have Sammy on the show, I thought it was worthwhile to to talk about it. And he's a legendary performer. You know, I mean, that this is one of Michael Jackson's idols. I mean, and oh, and that was the other thing when he talked about Michael. That was that was something that he said, you know, Michael was like a son to me. And and it was interesting for him to say, you know, all those dance moves that Michael has, I ha- you know, I had them. I could do that and, and probably better. He didn't quite say it like that, but he almost said like that was me. I was a natural dancer, but I chose to really build on all of my skills. I wanted to be known as an actor, comedian, everything. So I didn't just focus on dancing, but I could have. I could. I was a Michael of my of the fifties. He said, "You know, I I could have really, you know, done what Michael has done." It's it's interesting that he said that, and I we know that Michael looks up to Sammy as one of his, you know, inspirations. So it's an interesting. Uh, it was an interesting comment. And if you ever watch him dancing, he's not overstating it. No, he's, he's not only good, but he is actually similar to the Absolutely. way Michael Jackson. Absolutely, and when he was little, though, that vid- video footage they put on the show of of Sammy being maybe four, what four or five years old. I mean, he was amazing, amazing performer. I know he was the cutest little guy. <laughs> <laughs> we alluded to the the way that he died. We should probably mention that a little bit. Um, so he quits drinking. He quits drugs. He said that drugs was not hard to quit. Uh, he was only doing it, you know, because it was kind of popular. And he said he never actually got high, which was kind of weird. Is. He said that bourbon but and drink- vodka gave him a buzz, but drugs never got, got him high. Right. And drinking was really hard for him to quit. Um, but his doctor told him, look, if you don't quit, you're going to die. So that's powerful. Yeah, that will do it. Well, as far as he had some liver issues as well. So that's why there's a liver institute named after him. Is that not right? Yes, that's true. He was very proud of that. He talked about that on Arsenio. And, you know, you feel kind of proud of him for um, overcoming those addictions. And then when they come back from commercial, you see that he's smoking. No, I was like, are you kidding me? (laughs) No, tell him he can't smoke. (laughs) I know. I mean, it does look glamorous, not going to lie, but... <laughs> well, it looks glamorous because he's doing it. I'm not sure how glamorous I would look and, you know, how I'm dressed most days. Yeah. 
I suppose that's that's a consideration, you know. Maybe maybe when it looks glamorous, it's really that the person is already cool. But um, <laughs> I mean, not to say it's worth it at all because it's deadly, but um, it does have a certain look. It does. And then to think like that's the thing, like you see him smoke and then you're like, oh, we know he's going to die from throat cancer complications. And it's like, ah, uh, you know, looks like he was probably consistently smoking up until the end of his life. Yeah, he smoked four packs a day. Wow. And that never, and, I mean, he never relented, even when he was getting, was pretty sick. We don't, he probably did at some point. Yeah, I don't know if he, I might have been, I don't know if the doctors would even push you to quit because it's, he was so far advanced with throat cancer. I was surprised he would smoke that much being a singer. You would think that would destroy your I voice. Know. True. I mean, we know that drugs probably did a number on, on a great artist like Whitney Houston and from the rumor mill, I've heard that it's also had a, a bad effect. The alcohol has a, had a bad effect on Mariah Carey. So you've heard that, like you, you uh, hear that drugs and, you know, that yeah. substance abuse definitely affects the vocal cords. So, but no, he was in great voice. I loved his performance. I know. He was not alone in smoking, though. Smoking was still pretty common in the U.S. in 1989. Yeah, I agree with that. Seems like you see that now with artists. I think they're very concerned about protecting what they've got. Unless they have like some kind of substance abuse problem or something like that. But for the most part, I think most of the today's artists try to protect themselves a lot, you know, with vocal lessons and eating right and all, all that kind, kind of stuff. So, yeah, even in the general public around 89, um, there were still smoking and non-smoking sections in restaurants. Right. And airplanes, which if you think of how small an airplane is, to think of a non-smoking section is just it's kind of stupid, ridiculous. Yeah. It's just, it's obviously going to stink and the dangers of secondhand smoke are there. Right. Um, it was later in this year, 89, that the U.S. banned smoking on domestic flights. I guess they maybe felt that an international flight was too long. If somebody was addicted, they might not last 15 hours without a cigarette but right uh, man i'm glad that is over because that is stinko. i know it's awful uh, you know it, the other interesting the thing that blew me away with uh sammy is uh, apart from the fact like you know he just wanted to get up and jam and you know it seemed authentic that you know well we talked about that it definitely was because of the era with the song and everything but um but uh i love that he said you know i've been in show business for 60 years and i don't know what key i sing in like he I just know. does it it's just like here i am you know it's like a god-given talent and it's just amazing he it was he's an amazing person and performer yeah and his father got him started in the business with the will maston trio yes and it makes you think that a huge part of talent is inherited like I know you can train your voice, but he wasn't training his voice at four. And to be able to uh, to know that this is the right path for your son, I think it's, it probably points to genetic abilities. Yeah, most definitely. And the, the the Sammy's dancing ability, I mean, his mom was a tap dancer and dad was a dancer and singer. So, yeah, definitely genetics. That was the case with Michael Jackson, yep. too. Mom, mom is a beautiful singer. Mom had a beautiful singing voice. Oh, really? I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Catherine used to like to sing Christian songs, and um, and Dad was a musician. He was he was not a successful one, but he he played guitar. He had a band and everything. So you know, and that's why he was so committed to making sure his boys were successful. He saw the talent, and he could groom them appropriately because he knew his stuff. His you know as well. So yeah, you get the feeling that Sammy's father was kinder and 
looking out for him more than Joe Jackson was yes, for his voice. Because but. of what he said, which also moved. I almost cried when he said, you know, um, you know, my dad tried to keep things safe for me. You know, like he didn't want me to know that there was racism and, you know, like he. But so so it was it was kind of shocking to Sammy when he learned a little bit more about how racism could really affect you when he was in in the military. Because his dad kept him kind of like sheltered from from a lot of things. I could feel that loss of innocence. The point where I kind of got choked up was when he was talking about the um, racism and getting beat up in the military. And he kind of paused for a moment and he said, the thing about it was there was no one I to know. back you up. I know. In other words, didn't matter what went on. Nobody was going to step in. You're and break on it up. your own. And that's scary. That's mm-hmm. a scary feeling. And then it's like, you've got to yeah. use all of your wits about it's either you drown or you figure out how you're going to stay afloat. That and the moment you realize that to me is the moment you're an adult, you lost your innocence. Correct. And I can't say like, you know, there, you know, certainly when you're in your 20s and you're trying to break out on your own and you're no longer living with your parents, like the case was with me. It's like, it's like, yeah, you feel like, okay, I got to do this on your own. But you always feel like you can call someone, you know, maybe if you have a question or something like that. But the way he said it was like, it was, it was me. Like there was no one who was going to get me out of this. So I need to figure out how I'm going to deal with this whole situation. You know, it's, there's a certain, there's a certain energy behind his words that that's different from what anything I've ever experienced. I agree. It's fortunate they transferred him to an entertainment unit because I think he he stood a decent chance of being beaten to death. It was it wasn't it was him against the world. Absolutely. I, you know, and it, it'll be interesting to see. I don't know about his later work, but every experience affects an artist, affects their work. And I, I wonder how that affected him as far as anything else he did later, um, as far as yeah. songwriting or like, I wonder how that influenced him. I would. Yeah, I'm sure yeah. it did. So Sammy Davis Jr. was um, at a, at one time famous as equally famous for his impersonation yes. as he was for his singing. Yes, he said that. I was going to do an impersonation for me. Tell me if you can identify this person that I'm going to impersonate. Okay. <laughs> Ready? <laughs> Natalie. Oh, yeah. I know who that is. Who's that? That is Mama. Who is That's it? my Mama. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my mom... Do you remember what when I, I heard her do that? I don't, but I can tell you she did that like frequently, like as we were growing up. I would go and play with my friend and mom would, you know, she would come out on the front porch and scream to all high heaven, Natalie, it's time, <laughs> you know, it's time for supper. Of, of course, she would say this in Spanish, so I'm not going to say it in Spanish because I want people to understand it. Well, that's like the uh, the Prince Spaghetti ad. Anthony. Yeah. I mean, she and I would be like, OK, and that would it. And I had to come running back home to eat, you know. But no, tell me when you remember that. Well, her doing that. Yeah. So I didn't I didn't grow up near you, so I didn't hear it that way. But one Sunday at B.C. at an embarrassingly late hour, easily afternoon. Both of us were sleeping. And I think I think we, we had to be more or less somewhat awake for the story to make sense. But I remember just, you know, being all snuggly in my bed. And I heard outside from the street, Natalie. And I was like, oh, my God. Natalie's mother is here. Did she call? <laughs> like, we were surprised. Yes. She would, yes, she would have done that because it was unannounced visit, which is fine. But 
we had no cell phone and the doors were locked. You had to have a Wait, key and there was no buzzer. We talked to so. our parents. So she could have given us some advance warning that she was coming. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know why she didn't give advance notice. Maybe I had the feeling like at the last minute she got someone to give her a ride. Oh type my of thing. God. That's so funny. Like if she had done that now, we would have been like both like, what the hell is she doing here? What if we were drunk or something? <laughs> I don't know. Oh my God. I know. I remember thinking like, well, we're sound asleep, which isn't great, but we're both here. That's oh, good. my God. And she probably came in bearing gifts, like lots of food yes. for us to eat. My, we enjoyed a lot of that food and we sh- we shared it, right? Like I, I would share it I with know. people. If you got food, <laughs> you definitely shared because, you know, it was such a gift. All the cafeteria food. Was it was. Wonderful. It was like, you know, rice and chicken. It was good, good stuff. Yellow rice. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was not not a bit sad to hear her scream. <laughs> you were a bit confused. <laughs> I'm just a little bit confused why you're here. <laughs> now, people forget that. Well, they forget, first of all, I don't know why this was the case, but there's a comedian, Sebastian Maniscalco, who talks about this. People used to just drop by right. unannounced. Right. That doesn't happen. Doesn't oh, happen. no. If, if you do that now, now, people like hate you. Like you can't do that. Text me. Let me know. Yeah, or they think something's really wrong. Right. You need something, text me, okay? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let me know what you need. And I'll let, I'll let you know if you can come by or not. Our next episode is from August 89. Arsenio mentions Pat Sajak in the monologue. Sajak's competing show is getting under Arsenio's skin. Arsenio also uses his catchphrase, things that make you go, hmm. But the star of the episode is Muhammad Ali who shows the effects of Parkinson's in his interview. Muhammad Ali. It was a touching interview, and I like that Sugar Ray Leonard, and I won't get too too much ahead of, because I'm sure we'll talk about it later, but that Mike Tyson came on. All of that was great. I just, it was hard to see Ali struggle. It was hard to understand him at times. It, it, t- it took him a while to respond. So it would make me a little bit nervous. Like, is he going to be able to respond? Like, I, I had that feeling watching him. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I think Arsenio must have rehearsed a lot because he definitely has the patience to wait for Ali to respond. And in fact, when he responds, he's on point. He's definitely understanding. Right. He's just a beat behind. Right, right. And then we're not sure, you know, and, 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 and you see that he's trying to be funny. And so you that that's like a source of relief. Oh, he was trying to be funny just then. Yeah. And uh, but it was it was interesting. Um, Arsenio tells Ali that. Stallone, Sylvester Stallone yes. used Ali as a model for Apollo Creed. I never knew that. I mean, you probably could guess it a little bit the way somewhat. I mean, it's not an exact replica, but the way Apollo is so showy and his kind of trash talk right. is similar. S- similar to, to Ali. Ali. Yeah, and I was, I was surprised and pleased to hear that. So Ali, like, acts surprised. I don't know if he really is surprised. He says, oh, they used me as the model and... He says, they owe me. <laughs> yeah, they owe me money. And well, when Tyson came out with Sugar Ray Leonard, that was that was a moment. I loved how Tyson was very respectful. And he said, you know what? I know I'm vain. I think I'm the greatest. But every head needs to bow when we're talking about Ali. You know, like I, yeah. I, I kind of switched it around. I don't know that he didn't necessarily say that verbatim, but basically it was like all all my respect to Ali. And that was great to hear. Yeah. And I, I was... Uh, to me, Tyson is an enigma because in this interview, 
I would go so far as to say he's eloquent and certainly generous and um I don't know, almost distinguished. I mean, I know he has an unusual voice, but what he's actually saying to me seemed really respectful and couldn't couldn't get any better. Like, you know, well it's, spoken. it's funny that you should say that, Jamie, because I remember back in the day, because, you know, Tyson, we're all about the same age here. And I, back mm-hmm. in the day, I thought, oh, he's probably not too intelligent. Oh, his voice. He, I just thought he wasn't very intelligent. But now, I, you know, I recently, you know, I watched this uh, excerpt, you know, from the Arsenio show. And this actually was very profound, eloquent. I didn't catch that before. You know, I, and now I'm like, that's well, we had enough distracting us, right? This guy went to jail for rape. Let's make no mistake. Right. He was a felon. He bit off another human being's <laughs> ear in yes. the boxing ring. So... That's why I say an enigma, because there's no summarizing. He's just all over the place. You know, he came from a really tough upbringing. His mother was not emotionally present all the time, although they had somewhat of a close relationship, but in a weird way. She was an alcoholic. He saw a lot of, you know, uh, sexually inappropriate behavior from his mom. His dad wasn't present. Um, And he lived in what can only be described as a war zone, a place where people would Mm. get raped, murdered on a daily basis. I mean, it was really a bad situation. And he ended up, you know, getting involved with the wrong crowd. He, um, you know, was arrested maybe about 30 times, he said, by his own. I mean, he doesn't know, maybe about 30 times, was put in a special school that was like a detention center. And that's what changed his life. Well, that's where he met Muhammad Ali, right? That's where he met Muhammad he Ali, in the interview. yes. In, that, in, in, the, in the show, they talk about how he did see Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali came to visit. Imagine that. And that that was like the point where he said, I'm going to be like him. I want to be special. I want to stand out. He didn't even necessarily know yeah. that it was going to be boxing yet. Although eventually, he ended up um, being part of some boxing camp that was affiliated with the school. And that gentleman, Bobby Stewart, introduced him to the great Costamato, who was a legendary trainer, because he saw that the boy had Uh talent, you know. That's what changed everything. But it's like it worked out. It started off so terribly and then slowly became better, you know. But I think he just had a lot of demons early on, Jamie. I mean, when you you grow up without really having proper guidance and love. And for you to figure that all out yourself, you know, how you're supposed to love yourself, how you're supposed to have healthy relationships. I think it's tough. I I think he did the best he probably could. And unfortunately, you know, some of his actions were, you know, criminal, you know. Well, and it's interesting, too, because I think this interview is kind of a turning point. It's August 89, the year before around this time, and you probably saw this in the documentary, he has an interview with Barbara Walters. Yes. And he's married to Robin Givens. You want to talk about that, how that goes down? Yeah, you know, I had a lot of feelings. I had a lot of feelings. <laughs> I think it's odd. There were there were references to that interview do, during the knockout documentary that's on Hulu that's very well done, by the way. Robin Givens' behavior was really different from it it did not jive with what she said during the interview. In other words, they were acting like a romantic couple taking pictures. They looked 
there was no tension. There was nothing that would make you think, oh, there's a problem in this marriage, you know. And and then when they sat down during that interview and Barbara asked those questions like, you know, uh, is is it true that he's violent? And, and, and then she basically said that he was and talked about being afraid. I just thought that it was inappropriate. There should have been other ways for her to relay that she was contending with this circumstance, either through filing a police report, talking to an attorney. I just thought that revealing it in that manner uh, for everybody to hear was inappropriate. Even if it was, you know, even yeah, if I mean, the allegations are true. He's right there. It's not like she's being interviewed alone, right. even. He's right and there. And I think, at first I thought, well, geez, because I remember back in the day when people talked about the interview and they were criticizing her for her behavior. And they and, and some people said, oh, he, he was drugged. And when I looked at him, I think he's in shock. And it was something to watch. You know, if she... Again, if she wasn't in an abusive relationship with him, I mean, it's entirely possible. I, you know, she, the supports should have been in place for her. And, you know, I'm not, you know, uh, I think that she deserved to, to feel those, feel that support and um, to have gotten it from different resources. I just think that the way that she revealed that information was not appropriate. That that was the problem I had. No kidding. I would never in a million years do that. Imagine you have a national interview with your husband <laughs> and you choose that moment to spill the tea about abuse or that you're scared right. of him. I, I wonder what her reasoning was. I never have heard. I, I don't know why she did it. It would be interesting to hear from her why she chose to go about it that way. I, I don't know. Yeah. At the time, the word on the street was that she only married him for his money and she was considered the most hated woman in America. Right. That that basically seemed to be it. And, you know, and I didn't want to, you know, you hear things like that and you're like, I don't want to necessarily jump to that conclusion. And even not now, I don't know that that's necessarily the case. I just think that she made a huge mistake by going about it that way. Had she gone the legal route yeah. or any other way, I wouldn't have had anything to say, you know, if that was the nature of their relationship. He did later admit that he that he did hit her. I mean, I read that also, and um, he didn't seem to understand what that meant either. He seemed kind of cavalier about saying, "Yeah, that. like, yeah, sure, you know, we we punched each other." Like, she, he he also seemed to indicate that she also hit him back. Like that that was just the nature of their relationship. Uh, yeah, but, but big deal. Right. He's Mike. Right. Tyson. Yeah. Like, your <laughs> your punch is going to be a little harder than hers. So yeah. So that that was something. So that happens in 88, fall of 88. This interview is fall of 89, roughly, summer 89. And then nine, in 1990, I didn't really know this because I'm not a big fan of boxing, but uh, Tyson lost to Buster Douglas, who was considered an underdog. Like, from what I read, it sounds like like a shock or an embarrassment that Tyson lost to him. And he took it really hard. So after I read those things and, and thinking back on this episode, I just thought, wow, here he is on Arsenio at this turning point. You know, he's at the top of his game in boxing. He's speaking in a respectful kind of almost deep way to Muhammad Ali, showing that he has the potential, you know, to live a, a positive life. And at the same time is hit with the divorce and then the loss to Buster Douglas. And then while we were in college, we just saw his, his life go down the tubes. Like right. He, yeah. He's a, you know, it's like, you know, he's reached that height of greatness and unfortunately did, did, you know, crash. He fell and, 
And then, uh, you know, in recent years, I'm not really sure what he's up to now, but I don't, you know, he has a family. So I think there's, you know, normalcy and I hope he's doing well. Uh, you know, to my knowledge, I don't, we, we haven't heard about him in the news. So I think things are probably pretty. No, steady, that's always a good sign. You know? No news is good news, but um, so we talked about him in this interview. We didn't talk too much about Sugar Ray. Sugar Ray Leonard thanks um, Ali for bringing entertainment to boxing. Yeah. And I thought that was significant because that does a lot for the sport. You know, it takes away from some of the, the perceived violence when you have this trash talking that's kind of humorous and you have a persona, right? right? You see that in wrestling, professional wrestling. And I, it also gives you, as an athlete, a little more of a chance to get sponsorship or deals or commentating roles because once you're seen as an entertainment figure, people look at you in a different way, you know, more broadly. Absolutely. Your potential Otherwise, is it's just two people beating on each other. But once you see the person and if that person is likable, yeah. then, then you can market that, you know. So, and then Sugar Ray uh, called him playfully his father. So they, they definitely oh, have and, uh, a, you know, close relationship. Another funny thing was that he... He said that Sugar Ray looked like a rabbit. <laughs> he, he was given like um, analysis of people because pre- previously Arsenio said, you know, you had nicknames for your opponents. What if I were going to fight you? What would be your nickname for me? <laughs> and I love it. He says the squirrel. You resemble a squirrel, <laughs> and he kind of does. You know, cute little squirrel. <laughs> I know. I thought about it, and he's got like big eyes. Big teeth. And then I think the thing that does it is Arsenio has these little ears. Yeah. <laughs> and so does the squirrel. <laughs> he did. Once he said squirrel, I'm like, yes, that's what you look like. <laughs> and I thought it was, you know, rabbit seemed seemed appropriate for uh, Sugar Ray. I agree. <laughs> so I thought he, Ali was on point. That's and, and he looked to be really enjoying that part of the interview. And it reminded me a little bit of my grandfather, who also did have Parkinson's, but more so had uh variety of Alzheimer's and it's it's always touching when like through that disease through those uh, disabilities you see that they're really enjoying themselves and they're making the jokes that they would make because otherwise you're a little bit nervous whether you know you're going to be able are you understanding me but when you see that they're making jokes like oh okay good you know I like when uh, Ali says that he remembered meeting Tyson, I think he's just kidding in the detention oh, I center. Know. And he said, "Yeah, you were you were wearing a, a yellow shirt and brown pants." And Arsenio says, "Wow, you remember that?" And Tyson says, "We all wore yellow shirt." And, and Tyson's like, uh, "I didn't. I, I really didn't meet him. I saw him." But it's even though it's amazing, like you know, things work out just so perfectly. You know, like that he ended up at that school. That school saved him. That detention school saved his life. You know, it's really like a mm-hmm. correctional facility, but that saved his life because that's when he started boxing and wanted to be great at it. Yep. And he was passionate about it. I mean, he, you know, was part of that uh, camp that was run by one. Uh, it was one of the correctional officers that ran the camp. And he was the one that introduced later introduced him to Customato, but that he would uh... he would often practice until 4 a.m., just practicing the moves because he, he wanted wow. so badly to be introduced to Customato to be, you know, he wanted to be great at boxing. Like once he, you know, got that bug, he was like, I want to be great at this, you know? And so it's amazing. It was young too, Jamie. Did your dad? He was only like 12 years old when he got into this. 
And, oh, and, oh, yeah. He, he spent yet. a good four years or maybe four or five years training with Customato and became great. And then, but Cust never saw him win, you know, the title, win the heavyweight championship title. Unfortunately, he saw him do well and, you know, have a, like a series of knockouts, but never saw that moment. Well, maybe he saw it up in heaven, mm-hmm. but he didn't see it, you know. Right. Um, but what were you going to say about my dad? Oh, we were talking about how. Your husband had a, a strong kind of affectionate memory for Muhammad Ali. When you were growing up, did your dad like him as well? Yeah, I mean, mostly it was like, oh, he's such a talker. Like, and he he found him to be funny, you know, like all of the things that would come out. Like, oh, you know, like how he would trash talk and say like, oh, he's too ugly to be champion. You've got to be pretty like me, yeah, yeah. you know. So right, right. So I, I, I think that he just enjoyed my dad. My dad always enjoys big personalities. That was part of the the joy. My dad also recognized that um, Ali was interesting because he started boxing as Cassius Clay and uh, converted to Islam, changed his name, and then the big story for my dad's generation was that Ali was a conscientious objector for yeah. Vietnam. Right. I mean, he's he definitely an interesting figure. And I, I like that he was always willing to reflect and change because he was a little bit more. Uh, he initially embraced um, what Malcolm X, what Malcolm X embraced as far as, um, you know, segregation, like having uh, the black community be separate from the white community. He initially embraced that line of thinking, but then changed just like Malcolm did. And said, no, nope, this is not the way to go. If we really want to progress as a society, there's got to be racial um, integration. So he's always like, I love that he was always willing to like reflect and evolve. And, you know, I love that about his story. Yeah, I, I think my dad recognized that in him as well. He he kind of talked to me a little bit about what it meant to be a conscientious objector, what um, Malcolm X was like at the time. And people appreciated, I think they were seeing some of the civil rights movement through him and they appreciated what he was going yeah, through. I mean, he's a, and I just it, it read, makes sense that he's looked at it just, as a hero in a lot of different ways, you know, not just because of his athletic prowess, but because of the bravery that he, that he had in terms of like, you know, taking, taking, you know, standing his ground. I read something that really surprised me. So when you see this interview, you really see how badly Parkinson's has affected Ali. Like he struggles to walk out on the stage. He doesn't move an inch once he sits down. His voice is very weak, which is also a Parkinson's outcome. And yet the next year he went to Iraq uh, on a mission to uh, talk to, I think, Saddam Hussein about some hostages and actually negotiates the release of hostages. Really? I I never knew that. I know. Wow. I can't even imagine how... And with Saddam Hussein. How he would negotiate. <laughs> Not I an know. easy task. No, I guess he was building on the um, the Muslim connection. Right. But but still, I mean, it was it's, a, it's very difficult for me to even imagine him physically right. going. That de- traveling still, and still having that drive to be able to want to do to make a difference. He didn't lose that. And yeah. that's admirable. I, I mean, I could see that his his spirit was still there. So the drive part doesn't surprise me. But just physically getting there, like they said, he ran out of his Parkinson's medication there and it didn't seem like he was even going to be able to talk. Right. Wow. Crazy. That's amazing. That's a great story. I, didn't, I had no idea. The people were very grateful for his um intervention obviously if you got me free 
I'd be your right. fan for yeah, life as well. I would, you know, whatever you need, just <laughs> let me know. Three o'clock in the morning, doesn't matter. I'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> So the next episode we watched is from May 1990, and it's Mariah Carey at about 20 years old, which is just about the age we were when we were watching this. And she's making her national TV debut on the Arsenio Hall show. Imagine that. He had no idea that he was going to have the first televised debut of a legend, what will be a legendary singer. He had no idea how far this I think he he knew something. He knew uh, I read some interview where he he knew that Tommy Matola was promoting her right. heavily and Carson declined. Carson said no hmm. thank you. And Arsenio, you know, heard her voice and said, you know, no problem. Come on. He had great um, in- instincts for like having, you know, good quality artists and my god, I mean, for him to have that privilege of being able to say first time she was on TV, it was on my show, you know? I know. I think he knows, I mean, you never know that somebody's going to be a superstar because there's always that it factor, but I think he does know that she's got the goods. Like he, he knows what right. he's got, you know, in putting right. her on. And she looked wonderful. She was confident, beautiful, perfect pitch. It was just a, a great, a great performance. I thought she looked um, maybe like someone we would have gone to high school with, very natural right. looking. You know, this actually was an interesting discovery only to me because my husband's Venezuelan, but apparently I wondered about her, that. She, her grandfather was Venezuelan. So she has a, a yeah, array says, of cultures going on there. African-American, Venezuelan. Yeah. She says her father was half black, half Venezuelan. I wondered if you knew I that. I didn't know that. I didn't know that prior to, you know, watching the excerpt, you know, the, 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 the you know, the show on Arsenio and then, Reading up on her a little bit, I was I was surprised. She's got some Latina blood in her. Yeah, she sings uh, "Vision of Love." That's her breakthrough hit, and I, she wrote it uh, together with somebody else. And um, they the comment at the time was like, "This is a typical pop song, but this is not the typical way that a pop singer." Right, it. and then she was uh, made the whistle, the famous whistle register, famous you know, famous that she would That's hit right. those high, high, high notes. She had you know. Her mom was a an opera singer. Um, her father yeah. was not artistic. As far as I know, he was an aer- aeronautical engineer. And the relationship didn't last. So basically, she was raised by her mom and very much influenced by her mom. So I, I, I think, you know, it was just she was destined to be a great singer with, you know, with that early support from her mom. Yeah, it seems like you do inherit a lot of that ability. She started singing when she was three years old and she was already writing songs when she was in high school. So, you know, she's definitely destined to, to, you know, to produce some good stuff. Yeah. It doesn't hurt that, you know, Tommy Matola <laughs> gets her demo tape yes. and realizes that this is something and ultimately marries her. But, um, you know, even more than that, probably for her career is just behind her a hundred percent. So that just, makes a big difference that too. Whole story is amazing. I mean, she went to a, you know, record executives party with Brenda K. Starr, who I love. I still yeah. believe Brenda. If you ever hear this, oh my God, <laughs> we, we got to delete this part. But anyway, and I mean, who would think? You know, here's my demo. Uh, imagine how many times an artist approaches Tommy Matola. I Can know. You? I'm surprised. Right, he and he played it. it and said, "I gotta go back and get find this lady." Yeah, and that's amazing. It's an amazing. I I don't know. I have to say, I wasn't 
overwhelmed by her performance. It was clearly solid. And I'm sure people who understand music better than I do would appreciate it, you know, on technical levels. But I didn't, from that performance, I didn't get the sensation that Mariah would become. I, I didn't pick up on I it. I think that um, she's always, uh, she got, I think she's got better over time. But part of what you're feeling is, is that, uh, Sometimes she does not emote as much as she should when she's singing. I think that mm. when you're feeling the music and feeling the lyrics, it makes for a greater performance. And I think at that moment, probably the nerves of being out there for the first time, yeah, yeah. You're probably she was probably right. focused more on the technical aspects of the singing so that the other nuances that would make it a super great performance weren't there yet would come with time. She's had her moments, but she's always, so smart. she's always struggled with that. She's always struggled too. You're so smart, <laughs> Natalie. How do you know stuff? Like oh that? no. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what makes it great. Had you felt that, then you would have been like, wow, you know that, that, but she wasn't there yet. She needed to learn that. She's always sort of, um, she's always had that controversy. She did admit at one point that she had stage fright. And I said, Oh, Aha, uh-huh. that explains a lot because sometimes I do think that she holds back. I I, I don't see wow. that she's putting herself fully out there, even though she can clearly hit all of those notes, uh, you know, and and can write a great song easily. I mean, she's a great songwriter. But yeah, I know that's a, a an unusual talent. A lot of times, a diva really just sings, doesn't right. write and the she, music. But she's she a complete performer. But she did mention that about the stage fright. And then there's always been this controversy about whether she can really pull it out. Like initially she would do a lot of performances and she was always technically right on point. And then there was a a period of time when people were wondering whether she could really deliver. So she did. Mm -hmm. Don't know what year this is. We should probably look it up. She did a show. She did a show on MTV Unplugged and she performed a set of seven songs. She did great. It, she, it was devoid of any equipment. It was just her and her voice. And she got rave reviews and she quieted the haters. You know, she definitely quieted them down and, and, and proved that she could definitely sing. Um, but, but she's had some issues there. And I know later on in life, I don't, perhaps she's lost a little bit of her vocal ability. And I think that she's, you know, she's had some, some, some issues with performing. Yes, she has recently. It looks like that unplugged was in 1992. Makes me wonder now that you've said those things, um, how how much stage fright and things like that have bothered her. Because, you know, I also uh, texted you while we were watching this about the fact that she always covers the right side of her face. She puts hair in front of it. She turns her left side to the camera, like really noticeably. And she's explained it. She said that a makeup artist told her once that her left side was better and um, always make sure you're you're showing your left side. And wow, if that's the case, if that's the truth, she took it to heart. Right. I mean, once I, now that now that I've told you this, anybody who's listening, you'll notice easily that she turns her left side to the camera. Right. Yeah. No, she you know, it's hard when you're an artist. You want to always like feel like you're showing your best self and uh it's an interesting thing with her. You know, it's funny. It, yeah. And I, I had to think like if somebody told me that, and I know I actually have a kind of a wonky right eye, it droops a little, but somebody did tell me that once about my eye. And I, I probably at the time I internalized it and felt bad, but now I don't even think about it. So it's, it's different when you 
are a celebrity or you're trying to make something out of your right. image, it means a lot nah, more. You're cute. I don't see any droopy <laughs> whatever it is that I... Well, we probably all have. Yeah, I mean, I suppose at a certain angle, you're like, wait a minute, that's not how I look. You know, like I've seen that like sometimes right. with, with a bad picture of me or something. But but yeah, you know, it's interesting now that I'm thinking about her and her wh- where where I'd like to see her give more of herself. She does it with acting. I actually think she's a pretty good really? actress. She She did a nice job playing a case manager. I don't know the exact characters, you know, the character's name. In the movie Precious, she did a pretty good job. And she huh. has um, other actors have commented that she has pretty good natural ability. So I found it interesting that she could deliver in that way, but doesn't quite do the same when she's singing a song. Interesting. Or, or, or all all the, time. the time. There she are moments where I see it, but, yeah. but not consistently, you know. And huh. I thought it was just me, but then I read that other people thought that too. You know, that other critics have said, you know, she she thinks it's about performing, uh, you know, getting it technically right. But really, you've got to give a little bit more than that. You know, you got to show your soul. Mm -hmm. That's what makes, you know, well, like Mark Anthony so great. And I love when he sings Spanish music primarily, but because you feel you feel his heart when he's singing. It's it's uh, it's a big deal. Yeah. You know. I think that also applies to Sammy Davis yeah. Jr. too. You can feel yeah. there's a duet that I really like. So, you know, I love Frank Sinatra and Frank and Sammy were buds. Yes. To the extent that Sinatra was um, Sammy Davis's best man at his marriage to my Brit. Oh, yes. Uh, Frank was a good friend to Sammy. There were times that he he didn't kind of show up in the way that he should have, but Many times he did. He he kind of discovered Sammy and asked him to open for him. And um, another time they, they were being booked for something and they said that Sammy couldn't either perform or stay in the hotel or whatever because he was black. And Frank said, well, forget it. Then I'm wow. not doing it either. And Loyal friend. Yeah. He really stood up. That's awesome. Yep. For the most part, he had some some uh, times when he wasn't as strong. But considering the time. Right. And and how much how much more well known Sinatra was like he he would have been the the alpha in that friend relationship right he had right. all the fame it's impressive but there's a there's a recording of the two of them singing um, me and my shadow and it just every time I hear it I just think these are two guys who are having right. fun they are having fun with each other I can hear it I can hear it in the notes that they hit that they like being with each other and they like the song and it comes through. And there's that kind uh, of, it's probably the, hard to do that, that with the Rat Pack. Like there's that kind of innocence, like about them, like jiving together and being, I don't know if it was just the, the images that were per- portrayed on, on film and stuff, but it just felt so playful. And, you know, like you said, like an easy yeah, relationship. They're in Vegas. Vegas is new. Anything goes. And I read a a biography of uh, Sinatra by his daughter, Tina, and she says that, you know, he lived life to the fullest. And he the one mistake that he made was he never thought about getting old. Hmm. He never kind of planned for that part of his life. And I, I remember reading that bio and I was in an airport at the time and I actually started to cry in an airport, which is weird. But um it just struck me because she thought that the um, the wife that he had in his final years was not necessarily always looking out for his best right. interest. And she she felt that her father was in a tough spot in his final years because he didn't 
plan. And it, it makes sense because he was just so carefree right. that never just wanted to enjoy it and move on and not think about, you know, we're, mm-hmm. we all have an ending to our story. No consequences. Yeah. And the same for Sammy. Right. right. You know how he died. He, he didn't quit smoking. He didn't take care of his tax debt. And it wasn't right. a good end, really. Right. I know. And he was so young. That's what kills me. Like at, at the time, maybe people thought, oh, he's old. I mean, he was only in his 60s. So. No. And actually, so he's 63 on mm-hmm. Arsenio. And I thought he looked great. I mean, you could you could have told me he was 50. I would have believed mm-hmm. it. Looked great. And then the next year after he's diagnosed, they have some kind of a concert celebrating his 60 years in show business. So he's, he probably started when he was four, right. three or four, and now he's 64. So, and he's there and he looks awful. He looks like a hundred. Right. But by that time and, he had the throat cancer diagnosis. And- yeah. So if people saw him then they might've thought, Oh, well he's old. It's probably his time, but he was 64. He just looked awful. Right. Exactly. He was just run down once upon a time. Last time I I talked about the Mandela effect and how it related to my memory of Jim Henson. And I have another memory that is a false memory, but not for the same reason. And and the reason I'm telling the story is that Muhammad Ali makes a little cameo in the story. Okay. (laughs) And you've you've heard this before. I don't know if you remember. The name of the story is the Tony Orlando incident. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> you don't remember? Uh, let, let's see. I, I'm uh, Go ahead. <laughs> so my dad, growing up when I was in elementary school, my dad worked in the music business. He worked for a record distributor. And as a result of that, we got to meet some celebrities. Nice. You know, and so we saw really like from my point of view, the ones that I was allowed to, to meet were probably B-list celebrities, not, we weren't meeting like Sinatra or Elvis or anything, but pretty regularly we could go and backstage and meet these people. So one night at home, uh, my parents said to me, hey, you know what? Um, We arranged so that Tony Orlando is going to come here tonight and say hello to you. He's on a tour and he can make a quick stop and say hello. And great, you know, (laughs) Do, do you remember the the Tony Orlando show that was on TV. (laughs) I mean, I could really, I know more lyrics to Tony Orlando songs than I care to admit. Yeah. That's probably the most you'll get out of me at the, (laughs) (laughs) but do you remember the show? Oh yeah. Oh sure. Tony Orlando show with Don and Tony Dawn, Dawn. Tony Orlando and Dawn. So this was a show, this show was not on long, but it was on at the exact moment when I was, you know, five and six years old, when this was very appealing. It was a variety show. They would sing, do skits, similar to Sonny and Cher. And they had a lot of hits. They were corny as could be, but yeah, no. real hits, not, not little known things. So I'm, you know, five or six, and this is not totally out of the ordinary for me to think Tony Orlando's coming, but I do love him. So my mom says, well, all right. Um, he's going to come, you know, like around seven. So go take a bath and get ready for bed and then you'll meet him. So here's the Muhammad Ali part. I take my bath and I say, okay, I'm going to meet Tony Orlando. So and I have to wear pajamas. So what, what can I wear that I still look kind of cool? So I took this nightshirt that I had that said, float like a butterfly, sting oh, like a bee. Oh, love <laughs> it. <laughs> and I 
now as I'm telling the story, I'm thinking like, would they really have made a nightshirt for a five-year-old girl that said that? So maybe it was like a shirt that my dad had that I wore to bed. I don't know. <laughs> but I thought that this was a winner of an, uh, as far as an outfit that I could put together, I thought this was it because. <laughs> hey, you're meeting a celebrity. I, I yeah, thought, sure. You know, Why not? Tony Orlando will see that I'm cool. <laughs> and in my little mind, I thought, you know, this is all I would really need to know to be a professional boxer. Like this is it. So I, I, this is a winner. I, I should meet him wearing this. So I put on my shirt and Tony Orlando comes. I remember sitting on the steps. Are you sure? Upstairs you to my house. It was him. It was him. I wasn't imagining okay, okay. it. Um, so I don't remember a lot of the conversation though. I think he probably sang a few bars of tie a yellow ribbon, but it wasn't Aww, a long that's amazing. interaction. But right. So fast forward. Probably, I think I was in college. I think it's the right time. I come home from college on a break, and I'm hanging with my mom in the kitchen. And I remember my mom was making us some tuna fish sandwiches. And I said, hey, mom, do you remember um, that time when Tony Orlando came? That was great. Like, that was amazing that dad, you know, could do that. (laughs) (laughs) And my mom goes, what? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, you know, Tony Orlando, blah, blah, blah. She's like, Tony Orlando didn't come here. And I said, no, you got a bad memory. You must have been not paying attention because he was here. Oh, my God. And she goes, Daddy had a friend who looked like Tony Orlando. Oh, no. (laughs) So wait a minute. Did he pretend to be Tony? He did. They tricked me. Why would they do that? Were they just, (laughs) was there like a last minute cancellation and they figured, let's just send... No, no. I mean, at the time, right? No harm, no foul. She thinks she met Tony Orlando. All right. All's good. They didn't think about me continuing to tell the story for the right. rest of and my life. Right, and believing that it was Tony. <laughs> and why not? My my dad's in the music business. Oh, my gosh. Right. It wasn't like I was a, a you know, stupid kid. This is some. Granted, nobody ever came to our house before, but it didn't seem like so out of the ordinary. No. And he looked like him. So in your mind, it was him, you know? And when I, when I told this story to Jay, my husband, he said, you know, if you think about it, in the 1970s, there probably were a lot of guys who looked like Tony yeah. Orlando. Like if you had long, dark hair and it a mustache. It was like a typical 70s look. And, and he was handsome for the time. He was like Mr. Hunk, you know. He was. Yeah. Oh, my God. I, I wonder if this guy who, like, was faking that, you know, you know I wonder if he's still alive I today. I know. Does he remember? That's a good question. Does he remember? Oh, my God. And here you are <laughs> thinking that it was really Tony all this time. Lord, it's not a Mandela effect. It was a they they, they scammed you effect. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Tricked. Tricked. How easy it is to trick a five-year-old. But again, I think of it in a positive light because no harm, no foul. I thought I met him and I was and very happy. And it's a good time with Muhammad Ali because, hey, that's one of his famous sayings. And you wore it just to impress Tony Orlando. Yeah. And I remember this saying, too, because it was short enough and the words were simple enough that I really explored it in my mind and could understand what he was saying. You know, actually, the whole saying is uh, float like a sting butterfly, like a bee. sting like a bee. That the hand can't hit what the eye can't see. Ah. So his idea was... I'll I'll move so quickly right. that 
Yeah, my that, and that's what he said during the interview too. He was like, "Catch me," you know. That that was his whole thing. He was a dancer. Catch me if yep. you can, you know. Yeah, he yep. was skillful that way. Yeah, I mean, it's not like he wasn't a good boxer. Obviously, he was great, but this was a little extra advantage. Correct. He had. Wow. <laughs> that's in all your life thinking. <laughs> I met Tony. No, you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, it wasn't like a huge deal. Like no. it was like, yeah, like a kind of a cool thing, but it wasn't like, like, right. like you know, you know. I, I think you would have been more traumatized if it was like, you know, somebody that you really adore. Well, not only that, I would have told the story more. Like if it had been Elvis or something, I would have been telling oh, yeah. everybody, and then I'd look like a fool. <laughs> <laughs> kind of reminds me of when I saw Mike. When I thought I saw Michael Jackson on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, but no, it was not Michael. It was an impersonator or somebody like that. But I was convinced. We weren't sure about featuring the Sammy Davis Jr. and Muhammad Ali episodes of the Arsenio Hall show in this installment of our podcast, because those are stars of yesteryear. And Arsenio was more known for breaking new talent and being a contemporary late night host. But we're glad that we did. Those episodes made us emotional in many ways. Why do you think that was, Natalie? I was just moved by, you know, like nowadays artists like feel like they need to say what people want to hear or act a certain way or project a certain confidence like I'm bigger than life. And I just it was just with Sammy, it was just like he was just being so himself. He was being real like, hey, you know. He was talking to Arsenio. He was letting him know that he wish that he's going to support him. And then he was like, you know, I just want to sing with one with your band. It was just like a natural thing, as if he was just at his house and they were just chatting, like as if it was a dinner party or something. Not that he was like being viewed by millions of people. And I just I love the lack of ego and just the sincerity and the human connection, you know, that, you know, that 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 support that he was you know, conveying, I don't know. I was just, I wanted to give him a big hug. <laughs> I wish I could have slid in the TV and go, oh I my agree. God, you're such a great person. And the same for Muhammad Ali. Like, I don't know how often people saw him in that shape. You know, if he had a bigger ego, he would say, hey, you know, I'm not myself. I'm not as quick as I used to be. I'm not going to go expose myself on TV. And he didn't, you know, he let us all see what yeah, Parkinson's looked like. I agree like. with that. I mean, he was just brave about saying, you know, this is how it, yeah, and this is what it looks like. This is how it's affecting me. I'm not afraid to mm-hmm. show it. And then I loved, I was also moved by his surprise when Tyson and Sugar Ray came out. You could see he was really surprised and, you know, pleased. And then they, they just had the best things to say. So it was a touching moment. Oh, I forgot to mention that. I thought that Arsenio sitting in that, in the center like that, like making it a homey, comfortable, like it just felt like, oh, I love that he was making it like an informal situation. Like here, come out, you know, here are two buddies of yours. They're happy to be here. They want to, you know, they want to say some good things about you, but he made it, it didn't feel artificial and it just made it more special that way. I loved it. Yeah, and they were, it, it really did seem like Sugar Ray and Mike Tyson came in off the street. Like, Sugar Ray's in a jogging suit. Mike, Mike Tyson's wearing yeah. shorts. And Muhammad Ali's in a tux. Right. <laughs> like, we like we just called you up like, hey, man, just come over to the Arsenio Hall show. You know, that's... All right. Arsenio, I thought, 
artfully handled that whole interview. There were a lot of sort of empty spaces because of Muhammad Ali's condition and, and the delayed responses. And he was able to navigate through those empty silent spaces really well. It was, I thought he did a great job. I made the same note. Um, I don't know if he probably practiced with him because if you know what to expect, it's a lot easier than just having, you know, to deal with someone like that cold, but it really was artful and warm. I think that gives you the sense of being in somebody's home too. That's how you would talk to somebody in your family who's having trouble because of an illness. Exactly. Exactly. It's good stuff. So we'll, we'll leave it there with those warm feelings. Yeah. Well, it was good stuff. How can I help? Before the end of this episode, grab your phone and head to Twitter. Retweet one of the graphics posted at Podsenio. P-O-D-Senio. You can even at mention Arsenio himself. We found the recording of the Green Line train on freesound.org. Thank you to Craig Hagen. This concludes our broadcast day. Good night and God bless America.